I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I am Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case of the murder of Ramon Navarro. Welcome back, everybody. Just a little housekeeping. We are giving you our vintage episode for this month, bringing you yet another story of a Hollywood superstar's untimely death and also linked to just last week's episode, which was on sexual sadism. And just to quickly recap that episode, we brought you a discussion, a very short episode, but a lot of information about a psychological disorder that is a cornerstone of what is now known as the dark tetrad, the personality construct of sexual sadism. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to our Instagram follower and listener, TRH Cabana 3. She recommended just last week that we do this vintage episode and we took her up on it and decided to run with it. So thank you so much for the suggestion. Keep them coming guys. And our trigger warning for today's episode, we're looking at elements of beatings and tortures and sexual assault, a little bit dovetailing into our episode last week on sexual sadism, as Dr. Scott said. But with that, let's go ahead and get into our story today. Just another addition to our warning. Today's episode is on a very tragic and brutal death of silent and talky movie star Ramon Navarro, who passed in 1968 as the victim of a very tragic LGBTQIA hate crime. And with that, in the 1920s and 30s, we know that those decades were pivotal for the Hollywood movie industry. The 20s led into what is now called the golden age of Hollywood due to several significant developments in technology that radically reshaped the industry, leading to worldwide prominence and inspiration for the medium. The transition to sound in the 1930s marked a complete transition from silent films to the talkies, as we mentioned a lot last month in our Vintage Crime episode. Those were films that were now able to synchronize with sound. And the wild success of The Jazz Singer in 1927 had already demonstrated the potential of sound in movies by its use of not only the voices of actors, but quickly leading to productions with music, singing, and bursting with choreography. If you're interested in a classic Hollywood musical about this transition, please watch Dr. Scott's favorite musical of all time, Singing in the Rain, which uses this technological shift as a drive of the movie. But it wasn't until the early 1930s that sound technology became widespread. Many rural communities had a longer transition in catching up with the costs of switching over technology. And this transition opened up new creative possibilities for filmmakers and allowed Hollywood to reach an even broader audience. There was an explosion of styles and genres that could now increase the depth of storytelling through sound. New conventions then resulted in a wide range of film genres, not just musicals, but also screwball comedies, gangster films, horror, and melodramas. So we've referred to this in the past, but during this time, the studio system dominated Hollywood productions. And while we've talked a little bit about the system that drove the machine of creating movie content, this is the period where the foundation was laid for controlling 
the system was born. So there's a system and then also the big controlling mechanisms. Hollywood was dominated by the major film studios that included MGM, Warner Brothers, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and RKO. The bosses of these studios controlled all aspects of film production, film distribution, and advertising, creating a siloed and vertically integrated system. The studios guaranteed their control by requiring actors and directors to sign long-term contracts, and the studios even had their own theaters to showcase their films. Hollywood was now gaining a global influence through the 1930s with American films being exported around the world. And as international filmmakers experimented on their own creations, they developed techniques that then came back and improved Hollywood's productions with European directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Fritz Lang being heralded as offering new and bold perspectives in film. And of course, the studio system used their extensive powers to create another paradigm, the star system. So there's systems within systems here. <laughs> and this contributed to the creation of mega stars that are iconic to this day. Betty Davis, Buster Keaton, Clark Gable, Joan Crawford, and Shirley Temple, to name a few. All of these stars' personas benefited from becoming synonymous with the glitz and glamour of Hollywood that eased the nation's existential dread of the looming depression. Many of the films offered a sense of escapist fantasy as well as hope for a better future. Unfortunately, the early 1930s also marked the implementation of the Motion Picture Production Code, often referred to as the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code required strict censorship and oversight guidelines on Hollywood films. The code was meant to regulate content related to sex, violence, and morality, with films having to adhere to these guidelines in order to receive approval for distribution. While the code made writers and productions find even more creative ideas for their content, there were significant long-term impact in several areas. Because of the strict guideline that strongly discouraged any portrayal of sexuality, women's physical appearances began to be heavily regulated. This is something we saw with Thelma Todd, where she had contracts of saying she couldn't lose or gain a certain amount of pounds, just right. as one example. And this frequently resulted in negative portrayals and storylines that portrayed punishment for sexually expressive women. Roles began to be more binary in nature. Female roles were either virtuous or vixen with little character development in between. The roles generally presented morality plays with dramatic presentations of female characters who were either pushed to change their ways or face dire consequences, while men's roles rarely required anything similar to these regulations. The code was not limited to the roles of women. The code reinforced racist tropes of minorities, prohibiting interracial relationships, as well as homophobia by removing any and all references to gay characters in film. Now, while those characters were now coded in different ways in the films, producers had to be a lot more careful about the distribution because part of the star system was now also including what was called a morality contract. So if a star was on contract making a ton of money for a studio's they had to walk a narrow line in their engagement in the public and in their public image, or they could be dropped very quickly from their contract. Pre-Code Hollywood was able to delve into controversial topics like nudity, same-sex relationships, gender roles, blasphemy, moral ambiguity, and sexual content. For instance, the first film to win Best Picture Award in the 1927-28 year was entitled Wings, and it featured a scene where two male combat pilots in the Army Air Service 
shared a kiss. In 1932, in the movie The Sign of the Cross, actress Marlena Dietrich challenged traditional gender norms by wearing a tuxedo as it was considered unconventional for women to don such attire. And in the film Babyface, Barbara Stanwyck's character devised a plan to improve her lifestyle by engaging in sexual relationships. Explicit portrayals of sex and sexual behavior were relatively unrestricted in Hollywood until the Hayes Code. So in 1926, amidst the extravagant production of Ben-Hur that had already cost MGM several million dollars, executives at the studio made a pivotal decision to just start over. The lead in this epic film was one of Hollywood's most coveted parts, and it was awarded to actor Ramon Novaro. And it really just put him in place in cinema history. The movie became absolutely renowned for groundbreaking and ambitious production levels, particularly an epic chariot race sequence. For 1926, it was off the hook for special effects. Novaro played Judah Ben-Hur, the film's protagonist, who is described as a noble Jewish prince who becomes a charioteer and seeks revenge against his Roman enemies while also undergoing a spiritual transformation. Most people are more familiar with the more recent version of Ben-Hur starring Charlton Heston as that character. But it's interesting how much of the chariot sequence in that very famous and successful movie was taken from shots of the original Ben-Hur. Wow. Is it, so am I going to be blackballed here? I haven't seen either one of them. <laughs> Never. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, they're, they're a specific type of film. I, I have come to love silent films. That's one of the things about Turner classic movies is just mm -hmm. completely turn me on to this different genre where you don't watch it halfway. You put down your phone or your tablet and you get the lights down low. And yeah. I'm telling you, silent films take me to a different place. It's like, what was this like a hundred years ago? for people exploring this new technology of, right. you know, taking their imaginations to a completely different place. I love it. But yeah, let's, let's, maybe we can watch a silent film. We can watch a silent gangster film for a watch party or something. Yeah. So my daughter and I are putting together a list of all like the spooky Halloween horror films we want to watch this month. And so we've already been dipping our toe in that, but you know, we're big like Universal Studios fans. So we've started with a lot of the old monster movies yeah. and watched Preacher from the Black Lagoon the other night. And then we stumbled upon, what is it? Something like Attack of the Crab Monsters? <laughs> like It's all Attack of old... something, but yeah, it's Giant yeah. Crabs. I remember that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I am like heading in that territory, right. but I'm starting with the horror stuff first. Well, you guys should look at Nosferatu, which was okay. a really famous because it was based on the um, Bram Stoker's book, Dracula, oh, yeah. but they didn't get the rights to it. So they had to change elements of the story, but it is really frightening and with amazing nice. special effects for the silent film era. Anyway, very cool. Let's yes. Get to Ben Hur. <laughs> so the movie Ben Hur became quickly known for a number of reasons beyond the epic story and talented actors. Again, the most famous sequence in the film is the majestic and to this day, edge of your seat chariot race. The sequence captures thrilling action, amazing stunt work for the time, and groundbreaking camera techniques. Beyond the awesome chariot race, there's an epic battle sequence at sea that used an entire Roman galley full of rowers. While it seemed that Navarro was an overnight sensation, his journey to stardom was a challenging one. Born Ramon Samaniego in Durango, Mexico in 1899, 
He was born into a cultured and well-to-do family with his father being a successful dentist. The Samaniego's family lives took a drastic turn due to the horrors of the 1910 Mexican Revolution, forcing them to flee to the United States where they then faced years of financial hardship. At this point, the young Ramon's main focus was to support his family and himself. He took on a series of really low-paying menial jobs, but worked his way up to a better position as, surprisingly, a singing waiter in New York. And then, as well as doing that at night, would work as an usher at various movie theaters. And it was during this period that he was discovered by a talent agent that wasn't sure whether or not he was going to be able to do anything with Ramon, so he offered him a short-term contract. Well, that contract launched a stellar career in the film industry. The agent opened up doors to a series of lower level appearances in film and the exact date of Ramon's film debut remains a subject of debate among film historians. This is likely due to the really sad loss of thousands of many silent films from that era because they were never preserved. Ramon's earliest confirmed film is believed to be the 1918 production of The Little American besides stars like Wallace Beery and Mary Pickford. His first talking picture, Devil May Care, was released by MGM in 1929. Ramon cut a dashing figure with his dark hair, dark eyes, and athletic physique. His breakthrough came with The Prisoner of Zenda in 1922, directed by Rex Ingram and co-starring Alice Terry. Ingram suggested that Ramon change his last name to Navarro, making it a turning point in his career. The Prisoner of Zenda is a silent film released in 1922 based on the 1894 novel of the same name by Anthony Hope. It's a classic adventure and swashbuckling romance set in the fictional European kingdom called Ruritania. The Prisoner of Zenda was a major box office success in the United States, capitalizing on the popularity of adventure and romance films during the silent era. The film's romantic subplot involving the love triangle between Razendil, Princess Flavia, and Black Michael captured the imaginations of viewers and cemented Navarro as a handsome and exotic leading man. More on the burdens of the term exotic later. So Navarro was often compared to Rudolph Valentino during what is termed the Latin lover phase in Hollywood. So they actually were friends for a time. Rudolph Valentino himself was born in Italy and was a megastar of the area. But when he died, Navarro was right there to take on the role of the Latin lover. He sort of superseded him in uh, Valentino's death. But when we talk about exoticizing characters, that could be an entire series itself yes. as a podcast during this period of time. And it's something that we can talk about in more frank terms today, but it was very complex back then with very limited amounts of roles for people of color. And if you were a person of color in roles, generally you were seeing, you had to be very, very light skinned. And we also don't talk enough about the amazing number of films made very early on, including silent films using all black casts. Again, referring back to my earlier point, many of those films are lost because film was not preserved at that time in appropriate fashion. Very, very hard to keep original film. Sometimes we still to this day, people are renovating buildings and finding out, oh, this used to be a movie theater. Oh, here's an entire storage bin of films. Let's just hope that they're still able to be transferred into upgraded materials or digitized. But as women of color were exoticized in Hollywood, usually as vixens, men were cast as sometimes effete 
but dashingly handsome heroes and villains. And this proved to be problematic at times for both Navarro and his friend mentor, Rudolph Valentino, while female audiences would swoon over the effete and mannered masculinity that these exoticized actors played. Male audiences were often angered by what was perceived to be effeminate characteristics. Now, Navarro had a distinct talent that immediately set him apart from any of his competitors. He had a beautiful singing voice and also a beautiful speaking voice that allowed him to seamlessly transition from silent films to talkies. It was a transition that many actors at that time were not able to navigate. Again, please, if you've never seen Singing in the Rain, it's a perfect example of this. And the woman, Lena Lamont, who is a horrible, horrible person, <laughs> made the transition to talkies. And the actress playing her does the most hilarious speaking voice that you've ever heard. It's just wonderful. Love it. We're just bringing Jeanette down this time. During the peak of Navarro's career at MGM, his weekly salary reached a staggering $10,000 a sum that was considered incredible in the 1920s. And today, when accounting for inflation in 2023, would be about $176,000. Even as a young man, Ramon was incredibly shrewd and wise in his investments, with the bulk of it going to supporting his family and purchasing real estate throughout Southern California, which was very smart and ensured his finances through the rest of his life. Despite his success, Navarro was known to be an approachable, likable, and humble man, most notable for his lack of ego, which was then in the studio star system, a very rare quality. And in 1923, famed gossip columnist Luella Parsons wrote about him, praising his talent and dedication to his craft. During a time when many stars of his magnitude would often criticize their directors and studios, Navarro expressed immense gratitude to his director, Rex Ingram, and studio head, Marcus Lowe. However, as the decades went by, Navarro's enthusiasm for talking pictures waned. In a late 1960s interview with DeWitt Bodine for Films in Review, he expressed his discontent with many of the talkies in which he had starred echoing many stars of that time's criticism for their earlier works. His movie career included at least 54 feature films. Again, there's no record of the possible lost silent films he may have starred in. And as Navarro transitioned out of his prime screen leading age, he began slowly transitioning away from Hollywood. A series of roles in which he was miscast made him redirect his energies to the stage, singing, directing, and continuing to focus on managing his investments in his personal life. He briefly returned to film, but with limited success and made several appearances on television shows such as Rawhide, Dr. Kildare, Bonanza, Combat, The Wild Wild West, and High Chaparral. The private life of Navarro was much more complex than the movie magazines presented, and he was protected in part by the system. As Dr. Shiley was referring to Luella Parsons, Luella Parsons was a famous gossip columnist that was embedded and in cahoots with all of the studios. You had to get her on your good side and keep her on your good side because she knew everything about everyone. Hmm. So whether Navarro was out, which he wasn't out, this was a guy who came from a staunchly Catholic background. This was not a time when individuals could be open about their sexuality regardless 
of their riches or their investments or their star power. They had to be very, very careful. Many in 1920s Hollywood knew that Navarro was gay, but the fact was carefully managed by that entire system. And in the book entitled Beyond Paradise, The Life of Ramon Navarro, author Andre Soares describes the following scene. At 8.30 a.m. on Halloween, October 31st, Edward Weber, Ramon Navarro's personal secretary, arrived at 3110. Laurel Canyon to report for work. The iron gates of the main entrance were open, but since the front door was locked, Weber had to use his keys to let himself in through the kitchen. As he walked into the living room, Weber saw that it was a shambles. Furniture was overturned. A pair of eyeglasses lay crushed on the floor. Calling Ramon, he went into the darkened master bedroom. There was no sight of Navarro. He looked into the master bathroom. No one. Weber began searching other rooms, but Navarro was nowhere to be found. Thoroughly mystified, he returned to the master bedroom, and walking over to the window, he opened the drape slightly. A slant of light entered the room, outlining a mass resting on the far side of the king-size bed. In the now dim light, Weber realized he was looking at Navarro's nude body lying face up. Only after his eyes adjusted to the dimness was he able to see how badly beaten that body was. Futilely, he looked for life signs. Giving up all hope, he dashed back to the living room and called Navarro's brother Eduardo, the police, Navarro's priest at St. Charles Church, and Navarro's friend and sometimes publicist, Leonard Shannon. Lynn, you better come right over. This is it. Ramon's been murdered. God, that last quote is kind of chilling. This is it. You know, God. Well, that makes me wonder, like how much what they foreboding were in fear. there was. Yeah. They were, they, he already knew that it was that it was a situation gone bad that we're going to elaborate on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to back up on that, that tragic night, the 69-year-old Navarro invited two street hustlers, Paul and Tom Ferguson, to his home in Laurel Canyon. Paul, who had been sexually involved with Navarro for some time, believed that the aging actor had hidden a substantial amount of cash in his house. Over the course of several hours, Navarro endured unimaginable torture as the Fergusons desperately searched for the money that did not exist. Per later court documents, it was confirmed that Paul Ferguson engaged in a sexual encounter with Navarro. And when they were done, Paul became angry that he was to be paid with a check instead of accessing the cash that was rumored to be in the house. While Navarro was wealthy, he was well known not to carry cash with him. Paul Ferguson was convinced Navarro was lying and began to beat Navarro, demanding the information out of the actor. For hours, Ferguson beat and tortured Navarro with a silver cane, pounding the 69-year-old former movie star on the back the stomach and groin with the weapon. The extended span of time that encompassed the beating left the elderly Navarro covered in black and blue bruises. And while none of the blows made with the silver-handled cane dealt the fatal blow, Navarro eventually choked to death on his own blood. While Paul was beating Navarro, his younger brother Tom engaged in calling his own girlfriend in Chicago. And in later court reports, the call lasted 40 minutes and the young woman could hear Navarro's screams in the background. The following day after the family's discovery of Navarro's death, the police entered a macabre scene. Besides finding Navarro's broken and bloody body, they discovered a grease pencil stenciled description on the bathroom mirror. Us girls are better than those faggots. Police investigated and cleaned up the scene, including some of the best tech investigation tools from that time phone records. They composed a list of calls that were made from Navarro's home phone and the outlier was a call to Chicago made on the day of the murder. And after tracing the number and contacting the owner of that phone, law enforcement discovered it was Tom Ferguson's girlfriend. 
still reeling from the trauma that she experienced, she shared with the officers the terrifying phone call that she had received. The autopsy in Mortician's report revealed far more disturbing details about Ramon's death. Ferguson had been sadistic with the actor, not only due to the beating with the cane, but that he had also sodomized Ramon with a sex toy. The source of these reports are spotty and somewhat contradictory with even more gory details, but regardless of the nature of the torture, the damage had been done and Navarro had been brutally murdered in his home, choking on his own blood. With their evidence and witness reports, the police immediately arrested the Ferguson brothers. Their fingerprints were all over the home from tearing the place apart to try and find the money. And in the following investigation, witnesses came forward to testify that both of the Fergusons had bragged about the murder. The media had a field day with the salacious nature of the crime. The Ferguson's trials were twisted when Paul convinced Tom to admit to the murder, believing that Tom, being a minor at age 17, would not get the death penalty. During the trial, the younger Tom confessed to committing the murders alone due to his brother's manipulations. What a mess. The tables turned again when the DA informed that they actually would seek the death penalty, leading Tom to immediately retract his confession. He then laid out the minute-by-minute events of that night. Both brothers were sentenced to life in prison, but despite the brutality of their crime and the life sentences, both brothers were paroled a mere seven years later. Tom Ferguson's story is blurry after his release. Not much is known of what became of him. No records. He just sort of faded into the sunset. Understandable, as it was revealed, that of the two brothers, he had less involvement in the crime. Maybe he just realized, I need to disappear. Yeah. Paul, on the other hand, moved to Missouri near the Arkansas border and found his own level of financial success in construction and promoting rodeos. And as his fortunes increased, he gained an infamous reputation for being quite open about his criminal past, calling himself a quote unquote solid con because he had done his time in San Quentin. Of course, leaving out the fact that he had been engaging as a gay for pay hustler. Oh, this guy's disgusting. And I can't believe they got the same sentence. And, and it gets worse. <laughs> I know it gets worse. I know it gets worse. But here's why he shouldn't have been released after seven years, really. So Paul had a loud mouth and he also used it to ingest copious amounts of alcohol on a regular basis. Around 1989, Paul got excessively drunk while out at a bar, managing to drive his car into a ditch afterwards. While he suffered no injuries at the time, the car was undrivable. He made his way to a house in the area with the lights on, ostensibly to use the phone. The sole inhabitant of the house, a woman, was alone, and Paul raped the woman, who later reported details similar to the acts he had perpetrated on Navarro. During his trial, the prosecutor mentioned that there had been an earlier murder charge, but did not bother to research the details, leaving the court without any history that he had in fact killed Ramon Navarro. Ferguson was sentenced to 60 years in state prison, but was able to appeal the decision. For some mystifying reason, he was allowed release during the appeal and then accused of another rape in another state while out on release. During this appeal process, his Missouri sentence was reduced to 30 years and... Thankfully, he died in prison in 2018 while serving that sentence for the rape charge. What a piece of shit. Yeah, complete piece of shit. But wait, there's more. Hi, folks. It's Dr. Scott doing something that we haven't had to do in previous episodes. I'm recording an insert at the last minute before publishing this episode due to the high amount of additional 
but frustratingly contradictory and confusing material that I was able to find out about Navarro's killer, Paul Ferguson. Our first documentation indicated that Ferguson led a relatively invisible life and death in prison after his brutal murder of Navarro and the rapes of the women that he perpetrated upon his release from prison. But there's indication that he created an entire narrative of himself as a successful journalist and television writer in between promoting rodeos, I guess, and in between prison sentences. And there's evidence that he or someone pretending to be him posted several long screeds online of revisionist history on the internet movie database and an Amazon book review during a time when he was reported to have been incarcerated. Our initial research and documentation of this story followed a trail of really salaciousness that primarily emerged from the filmmaker and controversial author Kenneth Anger in his book, Hollywood Babylon. Hollywood Babylon has had several editions over the years, with the 1975 edition showing graphic celebrity photographs of horrific traffic accidents, murders, suicides, and individuals in the throes of death. Since the initial publication of Hollywood Babylon, many of Anger's claims have been denounced as untrue and disproven. But as with rumor, innuendo, and outright fabrication in tabloid press, the book is nonetheless responsible for many urban legends that then get presented as research and then as confirmed facts. Anger has been successfully sued by the families of several Golden Age era screen stars for stories that have unfortunately been taken at face value in his writings. Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This, has an episode on Ramon Navarro from 2019, and she does a deep dive into the conflicting narratives around his life and death. Her episode on Navarro is the last in a series of episodes that shine a light on Hollywood Babylon's blatant misrepresentations on what may have happened that night. She shares, as I will, an excerpt from Hollywood Babylon that has Anger's only writing about the victim. Quote, Ramon Navarro's ghastly death by beating in 1968 brought to mind the bizarre crimes of Hollywood's past. Here was a man dying as he had lived extravagantly, choked in his own blood, the lead art deco dildo which Valentino had given him 45 years earlier thrust down his throat. Two dumb beasts, Hustler Brothers from Chicago, Paul and Tom Ferguson show up on October 31st, Halloween, to play Death Angels for the 69-year-old Ben-Hur. All the boys wanted was petty cash, $5,000, which they had heard from other Hustler bums that Navarro kept hiding in his Hollywood Hills home. They tore the place apart, ripping up the pieces of the mementos of his long career, close quote. Longworth's episode asserts that Navarro usually had to be very drunk to indulge himself in these sexual trysts. And as we know, alcohol and driving are never a good mix. And in these inebriated and disinhibited states, he would drive dangerously through Hollywood looking for gay for pay boys to pick up. This led to arrests for DUIs. And in 1960, he was put on trial and required to pay a fine. A subsequent car crash two years later resulted in an arrest where officers claimed that he mumbled, I'm old and I just want to die. Although Navarro later denied making these statements. The incident did result in a permanent revocation of his driver's license and a sentence of 15 days in jail, of which he served one day. And despite his wild financial successes in decades past, Ramon's finances were no longer good. Although there's little information now, that explains how he lost the mansion that he purchased for his family. But back to the crime. Following a call from the Ferguson brothers who claimed that they were referred by a relative, Navarro invited the young men over. And now it starts to get really blurry. The Fergusons were young, but they knew what the score would be. They were invited to Ramon's home ostensibly for sex, 
or was the robbery motivation the entire time? After the murder and arrest of both of the Fergusons, the defense used blatant homophobia to paint the elderly Navarro as a sexual predator, while the prosecution pointed out that both of the Fergusons had records prior to this crime. The prosecution went on to explain that the Fergusons attempted to arrange the crime scene to make it look like Navarro was murdered by a female sex worker, hence the poorly scribbled statement that read, us girls are better than fags. The defense failed to make a solid case, and the district attorney is reported to have asked the jury not to put the victim on trial. The district attorney then went on to state that even if Navarro was morally abhorrent for buying gay sex, the Fergusons were worse for selling it. And while the scene was brutal and Navarro's entire body was covered with bruises, there was never an indication of sexual assault with the legendary sex toy that was alleged to have been a gift from Rudolph Valentino. Again, likely a fabrication of Kenneth Anger and Hollywood Babylon. And early in our recording today, we believe that Tom Ferguson, who was released from prison in 1977, managed to fade into the background. But additional research indicates that he went back to prison in the 1980s on a rape charge then paroled, and then again incarcerated for failing to register as a sex offender. After doing this time for those infractions, Tom was released. And in 2005, he killed himself by cutting his own throat. In Andrew Bolonsky's 2014 article for Out Magazine, Navarro is portrayed as a lonely and isolated man self-medicating the depression that emerged from his fading career, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And Bolonsky's spin on Navarro's descent takes a lot of creative license and more than a bit of nastiness, in my opinion. He's asserting that Navarro's engagement with sex workers allowed him to, quote, relish in the glow of his fleeting fame and that financially transactional sex just streamlined the process. Bolonsky shares that Paul's defense asserts a spin on gay panic and that there was actually no murder, just manslaughter. This new narrative that Ferguson posed came out through several interviews prior to his death in 2018. In short, Ferguson claimed that Navarro invited them to his place for drugs and alcohol, not that he had reached out to call via a referral from his former brother-in-law. Paul goes on to say that he passed out in Navarro's bedroom waking up to Navarro making moves on him. Ferguson asserted to Out Magazine writer William Van Meter in 2012 that he freaked out and lashed out violently at the elderly man. Ferguson then goes on to say that he lost control because of his own physical reaction to Navarro. Remember, this is a now 70-year-old convict and likely con man asserting his supposed disgust. Quote, the next thing I knew, I found myself being overwhelmed by this body and just like hairiness and I guess being kissed or whatever the fuck it was. And I came out of that and I go, get the fucking boom. And I walked out. So that's what happened. So of murder, I was innocent. Of manslaughter, I wasn't innocent. Even of manslaughter, maybe you could say I was innocent, but I was guilty of hitting him. I did hit him, but I did it in a drunken stupor, close quote. Clearly, Ferguson had quite a few years of creative license of his own to rewrite the narrative of what happened that night, despite his own substantiated history as a sex worker and petty criminal. Author and blogger Paula Bowes on her website entitled High Shrink dives deep into a series of postings and edits on the internet movie database where Ferguson or a ghostwriter pretending to be Ferguson or implying that he was Ferguson weaves a somewhat fantastical and altogether impossible to fully verify biography. Here are a few highlights from the still active IMDb and Amazon biography. Born in 1946 in Selma, Alabama, taught himself to read and by age five, he was writing and illustrating stories for his younger siblings, wrote an episode of Wild Wild West with screenwriter Jack Marlowe, and worked and studied with writers from Los Angeles to New York, many of whom are now long since dead. How convenient, I suppose. He also states that he was on professional assignment as a Native American civil rights reporter for American Native Weekly in Chicago, and that in 1968, 
He originated a half-hour comedy drama series entitled Sweet Dream, but a prison sentence nixed the deal and the network let the option expire. But most impressive is Ferguson's assertion that in fifth grade, his story, The Forgiveness, a fictional account of the life of Judas after hanging himself, that left his classmates and teachers weeping, and that the story, having been written many times over the years, was finally read in public in 1964 for a group of Wyoming convicts to the same tearful results. The bio then goes on to be even more fantastical and will be linked in our show notes. But his most chilling and final comments on the 39th anniversary of the murders are as follows. Believe this, I know beyond all doubt, neither of the two involved confessed to murder. They did admit to what happened was a horrible and was a homicide, but not a murder. Yes, one was a child of 17 and the actor, while a reasonable talent, was indeed a 69-year-old alcoholic troll who preyed on underprivileged youth who were desperate for cash. Listeners to LA Not So Confidential will be familiar with one of our often repeated phrases, mental gymnastics. And in this case, they're fully flipping across the gym floor. Over the years, Ferguson flipped from innocence to shifting blame to his brother, to accepting guilt in order to shorten his prison term, and then later to assert that it was only manslaughter, not murder, and then only manslaughter because he was victimized. At one point, he simultaneously decries Navarro as a sexual predator and also paints the district attorney as a homophobe. And and also, you know, you while we don't really have enough information to know whether this was somebody who was driven by sexual sadism, he really had no inhibition to engaging in torture. Sure. And it, pretty interesting, like it took hours for him to realize that Navarro was not going to have any money there right. and then realized he had to kill him or left him there. Maybe he, Ramon may have still been alive when he left, but there are so many things that we don't know. We don't know what the influence of alcohol and other substances were with these guys at the time, but clearly was a violent individual and had no compunction about perpetrating sex crimes on anyone. Right. Well, it just, it makes me so upset and sad that Navarro, like this is who he had to turn to, to get his needs met. And, you know, to keep everything on the down low that, you know, he invited these guys back and this is what happened. And, you know, I I wish this was someone that could have found love and partnership in the last years of his life. I think it's really, while look, people still struggle with it today. Clearly, we still have individuals around the world that struggle with sexuality, even in the most open and progressive of countries like the U.S. Based on your background, the messages you may have learned, the miseducation you may have taken in about sexuality, that all contributes to it. But, you know, we're talking about someone who was born at a specific part of time that was part Mm -hmm. of a studio system that promoted shame and keeping yourself separate, your sexuality is separate from the rest of your identity. And to me, as we were referring to, this is one of the most tragic elements of this, is that that sentence by his business manager or his um, assistant indicated like they knew that he had a thing with hustlers, that it was gay for pay. And these are street criminals. And it might work for you time and time again, but you never know when it's not going to work for you. And interestingly enough, he had been with Ferguson before, but he met Ferguson through another hustler, like this other Mm -hmm. hustler. So like, oh, you know, when I'm not available, you can give this guy a call. So Navarro's story covers multiple decades. And one of the most consistent themes is that of a gay man 
having to code his identity. And from the 1930s on, the Hollywood studio system held tight control over actors' lives, including their personal lives. Stars that were under these long-term contracts had morality clauses, as I referred to earlier. And those morality clauses gave studios the power to dictate their behavior. Fear of being blacklisted or losing their livelihoods pushed many actors into the closet with the doors firmly closed. Public image was necessary to keep the financial machine of the studio system rolling. Maintaining a carefully crafted public image was crucial for stars in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. The media and fans expected actors to adhere to traditional gender norms and values. Coming out as LGBTQIA could tarnish an actor's image and jeopardize their box office appeal. Through the golden years and beyond in entertainment, a number of notable actors of the era were known or suspected to be gay, but they kept their identities hidden. William Haynes, a popular leading man of the 1920s and early 1930s, was openly gay in his personal life, but remained in the closet professionally. When faced with pressure from his studio, MGM, to end his relationship with his partner, Jimmy Shields, Haynes chose love over his career and left Hollywood. The iconic actress Marlene Dietrich had a close friendship with fellow actress Claudette Colbert and is believed to have had several lesbian relationships. Dietrich's bisexuality was never publicly acknowledged during her career. Rock Hudson's career peaked in the 1950s and 60s in the movie star, but then he found additional success in the television series such as Macmillan Wife and then ending with Dynasty. His sexuality was concealed throughout his career, and he even married his secretary, Phyllis Gates, in a union arranged by the studio to maintain his image as a heterosexual leading man. And these are just a handful of episodes of so many closeted gay performers in Hollywood through the years. Yeah, so let's look at how this takes a further toll, because the secrecy imposed on closeted actors often took a great toll on their personal lives, more so than than it does today. The need to maintain a facade and live dual lives led to emotional and psychological struggles. Many actors grappled with feelings of isolation and the fear of exposure, which contributed to mental health struggles and issues. And it wasn't just the studio system that needed to protect its financial dealings. In the 1930s, homosexuality was illegal in most US states with laws against sodomy and quote, crimes against nature, were used to criminalize same-sex sexual activity. Being caught in a same-sex relationship could result in arrests, imprisonment, fines, and damage to one's reputation. LGBTQ plus individuals in the 1930s faced intense social stigma. Homosexuality was widely viewed as deviant and immoral and even pathological, which our field did nothing to help that back then. Yep, let's own it. Yeah. Public attitudes towards LGBTQ plus individuals were often hostile and unsympathetic. There were no legal protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation in the 30s. And LGBTQ plus individuals had no recourse if they faced discrimination in employment, housing, or public accommodations, except in successful efforts to repudiate the accusations. So law enforcement agencies conducted periodic raids on gay gathering places like bars and clubs. Those arrested during these raids often faced public exposure, harassment, and of course, the potential loss of their livelihoods, if not their lives. Gay individuals in Hollywood were vulnerable to blackmail and extortion schemes. Uh, People that were motivated by financial gain could threaten to expose a person's sexual orientation to the public or authorities unless they paid hush money. The studios were generally well-equipped to handle these attempts, but as in our namesake, the movie L.A. Confidential shows the complex and intertwined relationship 
that the tabloids and studios had with the police. Many actors, whether gay or straight, were bound by those morality clauses in their contracts, which allowed studios to terminate employment if an actor's behavior was deemed scandalous or immoral. And this led to a further culture of secrecy, forcing many gay actors to remain closeted. Because if they were out or outed, actors faced the risk of being blacklisted by studios, losing film roles, and facing public backlash. Maintaining a heterosexual image was crucial to one's career sess. And despite advances in our culture, it remains a factor today. I love the fact that you shared about William Haynes, who just said, I'm out, <laughs> yeah. peace, I'm going to go. And he actually I'm out and I'm out. <laughs> I'm out and I'm out. I love this guy. And he actually became a famous interior designer for yeah. many Hollywood stars. Isn't it crazy that like, this is how it started with just the morality clauses and all of that. And now it's like, they're kind of pushing stars into relationships with each other for publicity. And there's like this, you know, go ahead and be as outrageous or as outlandish as you want with your personal life in a way to get publicity, because now we know that there is no such thing as bad publicity in a lot of ways, but it just started off so locked down yeah. and how we know the, the industry curates people to act badly sometimes in their, their quote unquote personal life, I guess in real life. Yeah. Especially for, for male actors, they want the like, Oh wait, you're the bad boy. So you need to be the bad boy. Yeah. So yeah. they take somebody that's a really great singer and they make him look like, you know, he's working, <laughs> he's working at the cracker barrel in outside Tuscaloosa or something right, you know, right. just awful. No, no offense. I love your biscuits and gravy. We love bad boys. So yeah. that's okay. Oh, no, I don't like bad boys. <laughs> Not anymore. I'm over it. I do like biscuits and gravy from Cracker Barrel, though. That's about all I like. <laughs> Not anymore. Barrel. I'm over it. <laughs> I'm, I'm over biscuits and gravy. So <laughs> we just swapped. <laughs> well, it's a very sad episode. You know, what a what a horrible, horrible way to go. And unfortunately, not the only closeted actor that lost his life like this. There have been several over the years, but this was one you know, as a person of color, as a person of very, very deeply entrenched faith who supported his family and did some wonderful things in Hollywood. It was just a very sad, lonely way to die. And of yeah. course, we can't get away from it. As we've discussed in our Pride episodes, being gay was classified as a mental disorder or homosexuality was the term that was used, was classified as a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association until 1973, jizing further stigmatized gay individuals and may have deterred many from seeking help or support. So the one thing that I would love to take away from this for our audience is that that is one good thing about the internet is that any kid anywhere in the U.S. and many other countries they can be in the most rural area, but they can realize that they're not alone, that there's nothing wrong with them if they just find the right place and the right support system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think as I explore some of these older films, I will pay homage to him and go back and watch the original Ben-Hur. I, you know, the thinking back to just the family struggles of coming over here as immigrants and from their war-torn country and then what he contributed to Hollywood and is something that I think we should know about as well yeah. as the sad downside and the additional struggles that came with it. So thank you again to our listener for suggesting this. Thank you, Scott, for your contributions on this episode. Another good vintage one. All right, folks. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye, guys. 
We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>